that it would go throughout the earth. That you remind us that you're a good God. You've called us to be yours. You've made us yours. And you've made everything possible for us to live this out. And so this morning we come to you. Hearts needing you. Calloused at times. Hardened at times. Thankful at times. Changing all the time. Would you come and use your word and your spirit in each one of us? Would you do exactly what needs to be done in each one of us? Would you reveal to us yourself? Would you empower us to live lives that will honor you? To repent of sin and to respond in a way that would show you to be great. As we walk out these doors this morning, it's a little bit better understanding of who you are and how good you are and who we are in light of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Ex- Exodus chapter 19. <laughs> that was good timing. Good timing there. Um, 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. I'll also ask you, if my tie turns backwards, uh, somebody can tell me, my wife in my Sunday school class kept kind of pointing to me saying, your tie keeps turning, and for some reason it's turning the wrong way, and I know that's disturbing for some of you. <laughs> so anyway, just in case it does that. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak. To the people of Israel. The passage we're looking at this morning is kind of a transitional passage. It's a passage that looks back at what God had done up to this point and it looks forward to what God will do. Maybe you've been on one of those trails, a hiking trip or something where you come up to a certain point in that trail that just calls you to stop. Maybe there's something about the view that you have, but it calls you, maybe you're tired, but you stop. And in, in stop and looking at the view, you can look back and see where you've come from, and you can look and see where you're going. The, the trail itself calls you to stop. This text, as we come to this point, if you're reading through the story of Exodus, it calls you just to stop and to ask the kinds of questions. What's happening here? What has God done? And what is He doing now? And what does He intend to do in the future? So as we come to it this morning, we want to stop and we want to look back and we want to ask the question, who is God and what is His intention in this particular situation. Understanding that the story is important and we don't have time to kind of unpack the whole thing, but I want to give you just some highlights of the Exodus up to this point in time. The first 18 chapters. Some of you are familiar with this from the Ten Commandments movie and the Charlton Heston kind of deal. Some of you have read this over and over, but it's a rich section of Scripture as it puts on display God's pattern of how He redeems and how He saves His people. 
You might remember that, the, that Joseph was led, was taken to Egypt, and there he, he had leadership at the, at the end there of Genesis. And the rest of the nation grew up in this period of time. And the, the beginning of this book, we find that they were in slavery for a long period of time, to 400 years. They found themselves under the thumb of Egypt and Pharaoh. And God had made a covenant with them already prior to that with the nation through Abraham. And at the beginning of this book, it tells us that God remembered His covenant. He remembered them and He saw them and He remembered them in slavery. And what that tells us is He is getting ready to act and He begins to move. And of course, He, he selects Moses who had been rescued out of the Nile and raised in the courts of Pharaoh and educated there and yet sent out into the wilderness. Had spent His 40 years and then God appears to him might remember in that bush that was burning and yet not consumed. And so God comes to, to Moses and says, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. You are the one I've chosen to do this. And it's at this point that, that Moses asks, who is it that I should tell them is sending me? And it's at that point that God gives him that name. The name where he says, I am that I am. I am the God. I am always the same. The Yahweh was translated by the Hebrews, and we understand Him always to be the same. The, the name for us as we understand it, it's self-sufficient. He's sovereign, and He's personal. He is their God. They are His people. And He says, I want you to rescue them. And you remember as, as Moses goes to rescue them, and he comes in contact with Pharaoh and the magicians, and there's the ten plagues that they come in contact, and He uses, God uses to display His power. And with each plague, there's a continual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's hardened by his non-response to God. And God indeed says, I will harden his heart. And, and so we come up to the 10th plague. But what's important for us, and if you'll look in Exodus chapter 9, I'm going to read one verse. 9 verse 16. God tells us what his purposes are about. He tells us what's the point with all these plagues and what am I doing. In verse, verse 16 of chapter 9, God says this to, through Moses. He says, For... And for, verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you, that's Pharaoh, up to show you my power so that my name may, may be proclaimed in all of the earth. The reason I have raised Pharaoh up, the reason I have placed even allowed this slavery was that so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth, that the others would know who I am, and what kind of God I am. I am a God, I'm a God that redeems, I'm a God that saves. And so God's purposes have something to do with His name and who He is going forth to all the nations. And so at that point, you remember that after Pharaoh continued to, um, to not respond to God and his heart is hardened, we come up to the tenth plague. The, the angel of the Lord comes, the judgment angel, the, whatever you want to call that angel, comes and the promise is that this angel will come and kill every firstborn in each house, in each household and in the flocks of the livestock. He will come and kill. Judgment will come on Egypt. In fact, judgment will come on every house that doesn't have the blood that's applied to the doorposts. You remember the lamb that was slaughtered was called the Passover lamb. As the, as the blood was applied to the, to the doorposts, then that angel would pass over and death would not come and judgment would not come to that household because of the blood that was applied that was there. And at that point, the people are released to go and you remember that they plunder those around them. They take all of their gold and their silver, it's given to them. And God leads them out of Egypt. But it's interesting when you read through that section, He leads them not by the normal way. 
He doesn't lead them the, the way that you would normally go if you were leaving to Egypt to go to the land that was promised to them, but rather he leads them by way of the Red Sea and he leads them by way of the wilderness. And if you look at the map, you will see very clearly, even for a guy, that the directions that they followed you might question. And so there they find themselves in the situation where God leads them by the way of the Red Sea. And again, you might remember the story where the Egyptians changed their mind. Pharaoh says, what am I doing? Again, by the provocation of God, he goes after them. The uh, Israelites, the children, the nation are there against the Red Sea as the Egyptians are coming at them. And you remember their response as they find themselves hemmed in. No place to go. God has led them directly to this place where the sea has prevented them from passing on through it. And so you remember the story where God says, I will provide a way. I will make a way for you to get through. And you remember that he parts the water and clears the way for them to walk through. A miraculous kind of thing, but perhaps even more miraculous then as the, the Egyptians follow their own destruction because the water comes on them. And the great picture for us is that the same water that was spread apart so that they could pass through for their protection was the same water that brought judgment upon them, upon the Egyptians. And so this is the situation. God leads them through the Red Sea and then the, into a series of wilderness kind of camps. And at one place, they're hungry. At one place, they're thirsty. Another place, they're threatened by Amalek and God protects them. Each case, you find grumbling and complaining by the children of Israel, by this nation, as God, in, in spite of what God had already done, they continue to ask the kinds of questions. But more important than just the story here we follow, more important than just, this is a neat story that happened to a group of people, what we find in place is a pattern that God was putting, that was showing for us and all those who would read. It was God's pattern for redemption. It was God's pattern for how it is that He goes about saving His people. And so you ask the question, who is this God? And what does his salvation, what does his redemption look like? And you see, there's a number of things. We see God remembering the covenant that he had made. He remembers, and then he acts. He acts on his own initiative. He takes his own initiative to redeem the people. They were helpless. The nation was helpless and could do nothing to save themselves. And so God intervenes and steps in and initiates. He chooses people that are not capable and not worthy of his love, but he chooses them nonetheless. He enacts his redemption by his own power. There's nothing that they could do. So he does it all from beginning to end. Provides a way for escape. Provides for them on the way. He enacts it completely upon his own power. And then of course the blood of the animal, of the, of the lamb that was sacrificed and placed in the doorposts. We understand that that was the way in which they would live. That's the way in which judgment would be averted by each household that would place that and would follow that. And of course, we understand that pattern which is followed and fulfilled by Christ. That it's God who initiated. It's God who sent His, His Son. That sent Him as that Passover Lamb for us. It's Him that enacts our salvation completely because we can't do anything to save ourselves. And we see that pattern that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet we find ourselves in the same situation that the Israelites found themselves in, that the nation found themselves in, where God would save them and bring them to the wilderness. And yet we asked about the questions, the question about where are we? And God, do you know our circumstances? Do you know where we are? And we want at times to go back to the slavery that God had delivered us from. And so as we come to this text in chapter 19, it's that transitional text where we remember all that God has done. 
and we're looking forward to what he will do. And you see the markers in the first couple of verses. It says on the, on the third new moon, and it says on that very day. So the author wants to bring us into this point. He says, everything that's happened has led you to this very point. And then the place you see is very clear. He says twice, he tells that they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. They encamped before the mountain of God. And then, and then Moses is called up. And it says that God speaks to him out of the mountain. And so the place to which God has brought them is the mountain. It's in the wilderness of Sinai. And, you, and again, what's important that this mountain is the very place that God had called Moses initially. It was a place that God had called him by the burning bush. And as a sign to Moses, he said, this is my sign to you that I am leading you even though you might question my leading, the sign is I'm leading you with the, with the nation of Israel that I am rescuing them is that you will worship me on this mountain. That I will bring you to this place in Sinai, to the mountain of God, and you will worship me here. And so we see that this is where God has led him. And indeed, the rest of the book is at this place. It's at Sinai. It's at this mountain. God gives him the law, gives them the law. They establish or ratify or agree to the covenant that God has established and the rest of the book has to do with the worship in the tabernacle and there's instructions for building the tabernacle and the very end of the book we have God filling the tabernacle after they build it God comes and says I will dwell with my people and this is what it looks like to worship and the questions we ask about this section is what does it look like for man to relate to a sovereign infinite holy God how is that possible how does man relate to a God that is like this and the, and the answer to the question really is man relates to God only as God takes the initiative with man and then secondly he relates to God on the terms that God establishes and so the law and the covenant are those terms that are established by God for Israel to follow and so that is and then the worship of God and so as we come to the passage this bridge this transition from what God has done and what he will do, we ask the question, what's God's intentions? What's his intentions for his people? He wants them to be a worshiping people, a people who follow him and honor him and understand who he is. In this text, we learn a couple of things about who the Israelites are, and we can extrapolate them into the New Testament and understand who we are. And there's three questions I really want to ask. First of all, what's true of God's people? What's true of them here? The second one is, what's required of God's people? What does God require of them? And the third one was, what's, what's God's intentions? What's his divine intentions for his people who are treasured? And you'll look in, in verse 5, we'll find that the first question is, what is true of the people? In this case, the, the nation of Israel will make the jump to, to us. But he says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession." You shall be that which is me that is treasured among all of the other nations. You are my chosen people. You are mine. In spite of everything that has happened before, in terms of how they have lived, about being enslaved, about their grumbling and their complaining, their lack of, their lack of belief, we find that God says, you are, you shall be my treasured, my chosen people. You are my people. And so, how does God treat his people? Verse 4, how does he treat his treasured possession in verse 4 he says you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself he reminds them you are my treasure possession just look how I've treated you how I've cared for you how I defeated your enemies how I destroyed those who enslaved you 
Their power is gone. They have been destroyed. That's what I do. And you saw it for yourselves. Then he goes on to say how I bore you on eagle's wings. And it's just a great picture of God's transcendent and His supernatural care for His people. He did everything for them. He escorted them out. He provided them food and water in the wilderness. He bore them on His own wings. And then finally, what's important, He says, I brought you to Myself. You see, God's intentions were not just to rescue them. It was not just to remove them from the setting in which they were in. That's just a part of, that's a means to what his ultimate intention was. His intention was to redeem them, to rescue them, and to, you see, he says, and to bring you to myself. To bring you from the land of slavery, from the place in which worshiping me was impossible, to the place in which you are in a relationship with me, and now I'm going to instruct you on how you are to worship and how you are to follow me. And so this God's purposes are, are greater than just and they go beyond his rescuing and his redemption. They involve his adoption. They involve his intention to take them into his home, if you will, and to make them his people, to bring you to myself. I want you to imagine, and this was a circumstance that happened just fairly recently, rescuing what you do with that which is rescued. My wife and my daughter were on a walk, and they were, they were on a walk, and they, they, they heard the noise of a frightened kitten. I don't know how many of you are, are animal lovers. Uh, they are. I'm an animal liker. I like animals. Um, I like, yeah, I like them. Anyway, then they heard this noise of a kitten. A kitten was in the tree, and, the, you know, he was scared and he was afraid, and, of course, being that, they had to go and, and rescue the, the kitten out of the tree. It couldn't get out of the tree. It was stuck there. It was nighttime. It was afraid that who knows what would happen to this kitten. So they rescued the kitten out of the tree, and they brought him, and he was, there they were, and, of course... What do you do with the kitten once you've rescued it from the tree and you look around and there's nobody that's going to take care of it? You, you, you need to find a home for that. And why not our home? Well, well, the good news of this story, at least as far as I'm concerned, my wife's looking over here. Anyway, um, the, my tie okay? The, uh, uh, there was somebody else that came by that needed the kitten more than we did. And so the kitten did have a home. The rescue, they rescued it and they found a a home for this kitten. So I'm sure it's happy now. But the point is, is that God rescued his people, but he didn't just leave them abandoned. He didn't rescue them out of slavery and just kind of let them go. He said, my point is to rescue you and to bring you to myself and to make you mine and to adopt you into my family and to give you a home. And so his intentions of redemption are much greater. And then in verse 5, you see the passage I read about the treasured possession. And it's a language where he says, you shall be my treasured possession. And the language there is that of a sovereign who owns everything. And yet he owns especially certain ones. Certain ones are his that he has chosen to make his. And in this case, it's the nation. He says, I have chosen you, I have made you a treasured possession out of all the nations on earth. And so the language here is that, is that what's true of the nation of Israel is that they were God's treasured possession. They were his especially and particularly his. And I don't know, we don't have that same framework in our, in our minds because we own, we don't own everything like God does, but we own certain things and maybe it's in a circumstance where you have a CD collection and certain ones that you enjoy or you like or, or however you want to do that. But um, in a circumstance I found myself in a couple times that helps me relate to this idea of a, owning or being a part of, of uh, in charge of many things and yet particularly mine is um, coaching my kids in a couple of sporting events and where 
the whole team is really kind of my responsibility, and yet I have a particular interest in certain ones. I have a particular interest in care and desire and hope and concern for particular ones on the team because they're mine, even though I'm responsible for the whole. And in this case, God says, you are my treasured possession. You are specially mine. You're the one that I have chosen. And the question we need to ask is, why is it that God would have chosen them? Why would he have chosen them as his treasured possession? To make them his out of all the other nations on the earth. And of course we know there was nothing that they deserved. There's nothing they did that could have earned that. And if you look with me a couple verses, chapter 14, verse 11, just to add to that. Their responses when God had led them and redeemed them. And here they are in, in chapter 14 up against the, the Red Sea. They'd seen all that God had done and yet they wondered, what are you going to do now? In verse 11 of chapter 14, this is the question they ask. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Were there no graves there? Is that why you brought us out? We're at certain death. And jump over to 16, verse 3. Another question they ask. Another complaint. You see behind it just the, the distrust and the lack of belief and they asked, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly by hunger. And then they do another, another one in the next chapter where they ask the question, did you bring us here to kill us by thirst? And so you see, this is their response to the God that has saved them, that has redeemed, that brought them out of the, the land of Egypt, out of, save, out of slavery. And God still says here in chapter 19, that you are my treasured possession. And the question we ask is why? Why are they his treasured possession? Why is it that they were chosen? Don't know. God's choice. And especially after the kind of complaining and discontent that we see evidenced in their questions. And yet the question is even more daunting for us. As we sit on the other side of Christ, we understand what he has done for us. We understand that he has saved us and redeemed us that here we sit asking the same kinds of questions. He has saved us, but what has He saved us to? And you've all found yourselves in those circumstances. I know I have. Where you go, God, did you bring us here to kill us? Did you bring me here for what reason? And is it good? And here you have His treasure possession asking that. And yet, the bottom line is that we're still that. And for us, as, as followers of Christ, of those who've been saved by Him, this is the core truth that we'd be captivated but the fact that we've been chosen by Him. That we captivated by the fact that we're His treasured possession. That He has made us His. Complete. And I think that as we understand, as we apprehend this, we get this point in light of who we are and all that we have done, all that He has done, that a, a greater appreciation and greater gratitude the fact that He's chosen us. That He would treasure us. And you know what? Everything else in the Christian life makes sense as we get this point. The requirements that he offers us, the requirements that he calls us to live by, the roles that he has us to live out, it all begins to make sense as we understand that we are his treasured possession. We understand what he has done for us and who this God is and who we are with no deserving at all of what he has done. To be increasingly captivated by the beauty and the, and the mystery and the privilege of being his treasured possession. So what's most true of them? They were his treasured possession. What's most true of God's people, we are his for those of us who've experienced 
redemption of Christ. What's true? The treasured possession. To go on, the, the passage in, in, chapter, in, in chapter 19, the question we're asking, what's the requirements then? What's, what's the fine print here to be his treasured possession? In verse 5, you see that, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. And what's important to, to get here is that the if, if you will, we need to understand it correctly. This is not the if, uh, this is not a prerequisite or, a, or the fine print of a reluctant sovereign trying to get out of what he has said he would do. This isn't him just trying to say, okay, if you do this, then you will be. What's interesting is what God has already done up to this point for the nation of Israel. Essentially, he has done everything that they need to be able to follow him. He's brought them out of their slavery. He's fed them. Indeed, they have food for the next 40 years. We know that for a fact. They have quail. He's protected them. He's given them everything that they need. He's done everything necessary to bring them to himself. The if here is merely, if you will, a way in which they are to get a hold of or appropriate or apprehend what's already true of them. They are his treasured possession. The way they will experience being his treasured possession is through obeying his voice. As they were to obey his voice and follow his covenant, then they would experience the benefit of being in a right relationship with God. They were to appropriate and take hold of what's already true. How is it they were to experience it? By following him, by obeying his voice, by following his covenant. And if you think about it, it's the most reasonable thing on earth, isn't it? It's the most reasonable thing imaginable that you would follow and obey with this God who has already done so much to bring you to himself to do. Wouldn't you follow and obey him? And it makes sense. One commentator put it this way. The if relates not to covenant status, but rather to covenant enjoyment. The obedience is a grateful response to what God has already done. Has done. It's not covenant status. It's not so that you will be. It is so that you may enjoy what's true already. As we're captivated of being his Trojan, chosen people, being his treasured possession, then the voice of God and following it is a joyful byproduct. There's no problem in following him as we understand that. I found in my own life, I struggle most with sin and, and listening to the lies of the enemy when I don't understand who God is and, and how far he has rescued me. I forget from where he has brought me. I forget the slavery that he has brought me from. And that's the byproduct, is obedience of him as I understand who he is. What's true of them, there's treasured possession. What's required of them to be able to enjoy that status, simply obeying what he says. And then finally, what's God's intentions for this people? As we understand what's true, we live that out in obedience to him. He's got a purpose for us. He has something for us to do. And in verse 6, you see that. He says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Two roles, two things he identifies there. You shall be to me as my treasured people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if you note that verse, or the, or the phrase that immediately follows what I just read at the end of verse 5, it says, for all the earth is mine. For all of the earth is mine. I've chosen you, you're my treasured people, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. It helps us understand, why did he choose them, why does he choose us as his chosen people, as his treasured people? And it has something to do with the earth being his. 
There's a causal element there so that the earth may, may hear, that the world may know and see who I am through you. And the way that that's done, the way that the world will hear is through these two roles. The kingdom of priests by being a kingdom of priests and being a holy nation. Real quickly, the kingdom of priests idea, obviously a kingdom are those who are under the rule of God, under the rule of Yahweh in this case, the nation of Israel who would follow his rule. The emphasis of the role is on the priest's access to the presence of God. See, a priest had access to the very presence of God. He had access to him. And so the kingdom of priests is a group of people understanding that they have access to God, to Yahweh. So understand that. You'll serve me by being this kind of people. And what is a priest? What do they understand to be true? What happens, if you will, in their lives? Is it pride and arrogance? It's actually just the opposite. For a priest to come into the presence of God, for, to understand that who he is, to fear him and to revere him, there'd be humility, there'd be brokenness, there'd be a sense of, of who he is and life that's found in this priest. So the kingdom of priests is a way that we have access to God. He's saying, for those who have access to God, my treasured possession. And the next, the next phrase here, the next um, role is this holy nation. He says, you shall be to me a holy nation. The idea there is that they are a nation set apart, holy to him, for the purpose of what? What's the purpose of this holy nation, this group of people who are set apart for him? It's to put on display the mercy of God, the greatness of God. It's to reveal who he is through the way that they live, by following his laws. And so there's an extension here. This treasured possession is to look like this. It is to work itself out in this way by being a kingdom of priests, having access to God, mediating between God and man, and then having this sense of holy nation by the way that we live and the way that we talk and the way that we behave that people would see not perfectly none of us have this perfect life but it's pursuing that and by our attempts and by his empowering in our lives that holy nation status has an impact on those who will watch around us so there's great privilege with being his treasured possession and there's a biblical pattern throughout all of the bible you can see and the pattern is this that blessing is not intended to be kept. The blessing that God gives is never intended to be an end, but rather it's intended to be a means to a greater end. That the blessing that God gives His people is intended to flow through them to those around. Genesis 12, 1-3, a real significant passage as God calls Abraham. He says, I will bless you and make your name great. And He says, so that... All of the families of the earth will be blessed so that you will be a blessing to those who follow. And so for the nation of Israel in this case, their treasured possession status before God was a, was a blessing not to be kept, but to be shared through being a kingdom of priests and through being a holy nation for others to watch and to follow in that, in that regard. And the same is true for us. God has called us in the same kind of ways. We've experienced the redemption of Christ as we've experienced what he has done for us, his provision, day in and day out, we find ourselves as his treasured possession. We have full access to the presence of God. And I think the question for us, the question that I've wrestled with even this week, having to do with this treasure, this privilege that God has laid upon us, this blessing, is what blessing do I have? How do I see that? Do I truly understand what God has lavished on me? 
Do I understand that now I have, because of Christ, every blessing in the heavenlies? I'm not just talking about financial or material blessing, which we all have much of, but I'm talking about spiritual blessing. The fact that we have Christ, the fact that we have the scriptures, the fact that we have the spirit indwelling us and living in our lives, the fact that we have each other, the fact that we have a church and a freedom to come and to share and that we have on and on and on it goes. God has blessed us and yet what do we do? What do I do? Sometimes I think and my mentality is to keep. And what I do in doing, by doing that is I misappropriate what God has placed as a blessing in my life. Instead of sharing and instead of passing it on, material blessings, instead of accumulating, it's giving them away. Living because we are his treasured possession. Living in this way. We do that. And we need God to come in and to reveal the blessing we have is to be shared. Because the problem and the issue is that the gospel becomes emasculated when we live for ourselves. The gospel, it loses its vitality, it loses its strength, it loses all that it's supposed to be in our lives as we think it's to end with us. Just as Israel failed with seeing that, with misunderstanding that this blessing was not just to be kept for themselves, but to be passed on. We must remember that our treasured status before God and our access to our sovereign is for the purpose of displaying him and all of his goodness. To display his redemption, his saving of us, his provision for us, and to say it's about him. What's true of the nation of Israel, what's true of us? God's chosen people. He's chose us. His treasured possession. We need to be captivated by that fact. As we grow and increase in our understanding, we can't help but be sitting in awe before him. What's requirements to enjoy that status? Just simply obeying Him. Just simply following Him. Keeping our eyes fixed on Him. Learning what it means to worship Him. And then His role or His intention for us. Access and privilege to come into His presence. Boldly into His presence. And then also to be a holy people. To ask Him to make us holy. So that others will see not how good we are. Not how great we are. We've got plenty of complaining. There's a bunch of stuff under the rug. The bottom line is he has saved us and he's working in us and others will see that. I want to conclude with a reading passage in 1 Peter. If you turn with your, in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read this in the Declaration of the Gospel. 2 verse 9. Peter pulls all these themes together that we're talking about. It's true and the roles to this one summary 1 Peter 2.9 He writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, possession, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, he says that we, on the other side of Christ, are his chosen people. We are a holy nation. We are this chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. We know now that we have access to Christ. We have access to God, rather, through Christ because of his death and his resurrection. We have the spirit that indwells us now that makes us holy and changes us progressively, slowly, but nonetheless changes us. And we can take great delight in being his treasured possession. The end, though, is not us. It's not to be kept 
And as we, as we see him, as we understand him, as we grow, we are captivated with who we are, what's true of us. It can't help but be passed on to others around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do sit in awe as we consider what it means to be your treasured possession. I, I confess how easy that is to just take that for granted, to somehow think and see myself as worthy of that, and yet we desperately need to have our eyes opened to see who you are and who we are. We want to grow in our understanding and our awareness and our apprehension of the beauty and the mystery and the privilege of being your treasured possession because of Christ. Father, we want to grow in, in pleasing you and living our lives that would honor you as we understand what you've done, that, that we would live joyfully wanting to obey you and follow you. And Father, that you would enable us to be as those with access to the very presence of God. People are humbled, people who need you, and, and, and live our lives in such a way that demonstrates and shows that we've been in your presence so that the earth would know, so that those around us would see that you're good, so that you would be put on display. Thanks that you promised to do this, that there's great hope because of Christ and his work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.